All right, good morning, everyone. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Last week we wrapped up the letter to the church in Thyatira, uh, chapter 2 of Revelation finished. And if you remember, we went over two different tangents. We, our first tangent was pivoting to Psalm 2 because of the language our Lord uses to the church in Thyatira. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Of course, that comes from Psalm 2. And then we spent some time on this morning star, and, and that gave me an opportunity and a tangent to uh, look at Chrysostom's Paschal homily and how he interprets Isaiah 14. And if you recall, that's classically interpreted and understood to be, to be a, verses about Satan, a description of Satan, how Satan is, is cast or descends into hell. And Chrysostom's take on this is that Satan is an antitype of our Lord. So as, as Satan descends into hell for punishment, so Jesus descends into hell, as we confess in the creed, for victory. So that would be maybe the tightest way to put that theme together. So that, again, if Chrysostom has us pointed in the right direction, and, and I think he does, the idea is absolutely fascinating, where we see, where we see Satan, we see, we see a false messiah one who aspired to be what the Messiah is, but went about it all wrong, all upside down, and, uh, you know, had pride and exalted himself where our Lord um, took on lowliness and humbled himself. And that's that Philippians 2 theology that, you know, we were, we were referencing last week as well. Okay, so that brings us to an end then to the letter of Thyatira and where we left off last week. Into chapter 3 and to the church in Sardis. Now, but by way of introduction to Sardis, I'll simply do what I've been doing and read for you Brighton's notes on that city. Sardis, an ancient city located some 50 miles northeast of Ephesus, was at one time one of the most important and powerful cities of the Mediterranean world. By the time it was incorporated into the Roman Empire, though, it had lost most of its renown. According to Ramsey, it was almost like a city of the past, a relic of the period of barbaric warfare, which lived rather on its ancient prestige than on its suitability to present conditions. Sardis, capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, later in the Persian Empire, became the seat of the Persian governor. When the Greeks came to know it, they esteemed it highly. By the first century of the Christian era, that glorious aura was long gone. Now the inhabitants could take pride only in the past. Their present life in terms of worldly fame and culture was an empty shell of lost glory. And one other comment here in passing, we're going to see references in our Lord's word to, in English I think it's translated as wake up, and that's okay. Um, more literally, it's be on guard, stay on watch, that kind of thing. And here Brighton has a suggestion 
in reference to that. The dominical warning, that's our Lord's warning, might have been especially pertinent to residents of Sardis whose city was twice taken captive due to a lack of vigilance on the part of its defenders. <laughs> so it was twice taken captive because the guards weren't staying awake, weren't paying attention. So interesting then that that's exactly the, the language our Lord's going to use here in this epistle. So without further introduction, then chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We actually have to stop there because this is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? We, we have seen the seven stars. If you go back to, if you go back to chapter 1, And if you look at verse 16, now what you're seeing here, we're in the middle of this vision of the Son of Man. And, and remember, you want to you visualize this from the vision of the Son of Man flows forth all of these seven letters, and each of the seven letters leads back to him. So in chapter 1, verse 16, we read, In his right hand he held seven stars. Okay? So... That's the second referent there. But what else is in? What else do we have him see, or what else does he have? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God. That, that's a reference all the way back to chapter one, uh, verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come. Okay, that's the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful, the witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, so very interesting because, because structurally what this is doing is tying us back into the whole of, of Revelation, the, the entire thing so far. I pause here to explain this and, and just describe this because... These first three chapters are a microcosm for the rest of the book. It goes, it goes forth from the vision, uh, in this case the Son of Man, and leads back, even tying in together the themes of the whole book. There's this, there's this cycle, if you will, that this sort of, depending on how you visualize it, right, um, where it goes out and it comes back and it continually self-references and weaves together. Why I say it's a microcosm is because, as we'll see when we get into chapter 4, we really have the throne room of God revealed there, the Lamb and the Spirit, and the one seated on the throne. Again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the rest of Revelation is just this pattern, only more data, more complexity. But the same pattern. Everything flows from the throne room. Uh, we'll see the seven uh, seals, the seven trumpets, the seven censers with the great war interlude. All of this simply flows from the throne, leads back to the throne with references that tie back in occasionally to the three chapters, thus giving the whole text a unified whole. It's, it's beautiful to visualize. It's a tapestry. It's a piece of literary genius. But understanding this already, already can stop us from the monkey business of modern interpreters where the whole thing is seen linearly and chronologically, as if first you have the seven letters, and, and then after that you have the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, and then the seven censers, as if they're all 
different things, you see. And when you put on that chronology, when that's your presupposition, is that this thing flows chronologically as if it were written in the 20th century United States or something. Uh, when that's your premise, then, then of course, how are you going to view those events? You're going to view those events simply as linear prophecy. So where are we in the timeline? What's, what's happening in the current events? You know, as if you need to have your iPhone Apple News app out in order to really decipher what's going on in Revelation. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth, as we'll see. Revelation is a self-contained work. It's cyclical. It's layered. Those, the seven letters, the seven trumpets, uh, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven censers, they're all just going back over the same course of time. That is the time from Christ's uh, crucifixion and reign, if you will, even the Christ event, the incarnation. You don't have to put too fine of a point on it. The Christ event, particularly his coronation where he's crowned with thorns and his reigning, up into the period of his return. Okay. So, so we're just looking at that from different angle, different angle. You know, the same way that you might see like uh, a Hail Mary touchdown pass. Remember in the good old days when we used to watch football? Doesn't that feel like sports on TV? Doesn't that feel like it was 20 years ago? Gosh, it's just insane. I think we've all aged decades throughout. <laughs> I was thinking about that, like, with our, with our vicar departing today. I was thinking, in one sense, how absolutely fast it went, you know, just the blink of an eye, especially probably for you when you were shut out of the church for half the year. But, but then, I, on, on the other hand, I think back to when he first arrived and doing Faith Academy last summer, and it seems like I must have been 10 years old when all that was happening. I mean, it's just, whew, so much. Anyway, I digress, but... Yeah, so what we want to see is that, that Revelation is this, is just going over, the, going over and going over, like when you're watching a football game, and there's a, there's a game-winning Hail Mary pass, and you've got all these different camera angles on it. So we're going to look at this camera angle, then we're going to look at this camera angle, and then we're going, to, we're going to flip over to the winning coach, and we're going to flip over to the losing coach. <laughs> you know, vastly different pictures but all the same reality. And so that's what we're going to see on repeat or cycled then throughout Revelation. That keeps us from this linear chronology. I mean, not to say that we can't pick out certain major themes that portend to the future, like Revelation seems to speak in no uncertain terms that things get a lot worse before Christ comes. And we can certainly get out our iPhones and see that things are getting a lot worse, okay? So there are some general patterns we can pick out, that kind of thing. But, you know, the, the way that so much of American evangelicalism reads this text is if, you know, the locusts, the demonic locusts are helicopters or, I, but now, now helicopters is old technology, so now we're moving on to, you know, yeah, drones. Now they're clearly drones, right? Yeah, well... You can see the problem with that read. Okay, so I simply, I simply point that out then, that this introduction masterfully, marvelously loops us back into earlier portions of the text. It also does something else that Revelation does. It, sta it starts stacking those layers and layers and layers upon meaning hoping that you're gathering those up so that then with a single image or with a single set of words, it's conjuring to mind all kinds of things. Now, you can see that because the seven stars back in chapter 1, remember, they are connected with 
the seven churches. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Okay, so chapter 1, verse 16 is, In his hand he held seven stars. Chapter 1, verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, see how it's a mystery? And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So look at the connection, and then, and then see how the letters are written, to the angel of the church. Okay, so do you see how the stars are each connected with the churches? Make sense? So where you see the stars, you see the churches. Where you see the churches, you see the stars. Then look what, it, look what goes on here in chapter 3, verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits previously understood as the Holy Spirit are now melded together with this image so that, so that the seven spirits, the seven stars, and the seven churches are all connected. Do you see that? Now, we're going to add in one more layer, and we're going to do that um, as we move into chapter 4, but I'll simply, so we'll get back to this, but I'll simply point it out here as well. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Remember what, what Jesus says to one of the churches? I will remove your lampstand. Unless you repent, I will remove your lampstand. Okay, so, so look what John has done then. He's got, he's got at least these four things layered together. Seven churches, seven stars, seven lampstands, seven spirits. He's got them all layered together. And as we progress, what you're going to see is that these are really all, while you can make distinctions between them, they're all, frankly, one and the same. It's what we confess in the third article of the, of the creed, that the Holy Spirit is the one who creates the church, the communion of saints. So the seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes the churches. And the churches have their angels. And together, this sevenfold church is the seven lamps, the seven lampstands of God. And we're, again, we're going to dwell on this and visualize this when we get to chapter 4. The point here is just to see John's literary technique. Are you grasping that? How it's just, he stacks layer upon layer upon layer, and then he expects you to keep that in mind as you move forward. All right, so a rather dense introductory verse, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what he says here, uh, most commentators think are, this is about the second of his, uh, the second harshest of the seven letters. I know your works. You have the reputation. And there's a little bit of wordplay going on here because that word for reputation is name. You have the name of being alive. Reputation is a fine translation, but it just ties in with this theme of names here in this epistle. You have the reputation or name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. There's that word, wake up, be watchful, uh, like, the, like the soldiers of their own town did not do, and thus they were sacked twice. 
wake up or be watchful and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So overall, I look at you and you're dead. Yet not the entire thing. There's a remnant that remains and that remnant needs to be strengthened that it may not die. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Okay, your works aren't finished. There's more for you to do. Remember then what you received and heard. So quite, quite literally, this is monergistic. This is the preaching, what they received and heard. Keep it, there's that word tereo, that guard it, obey it, keep it, treasure it. Keep it and repent. And the language there is, the grammar there is probably even more so, keep it so that you will repent. Because as you you lose what you received, as you lose what you heard, as you lose the word of God, you lose repentance. And you lose your spiritual sight. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So when you lose the word, you lose the light. When you lose the light, you fall asleep. So wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it so that you will repent. If you will not wake up, if you will not be watchful, I will come like a thief. So that's interesting imagery. Uh, The point here simply being, you know, does a thief announce to you when he's going to come? No. Uh, If you had any inkling of when he was going to come, you would stay awake, call the police, load your shotgun, whatever your approach may be. But here, here Jesus says then, if you won't wake up, if you won't be watchful, then I will come like a thief. And that also carries like ominous connotations. I will come as your enemy, right? Because you've, you've fallen asleep. You've gone into the darkness. You have become my enemy. So I will come as your enemy. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So again, surprise and against neither of which you want. So again, this ties back into the central message to this church and by extension to the whole church and to us, to our congregation, each one of us individually. Repent, lest the Lord come like a thief. That is to be waking and watchful for his coming, anticipating the coming of the Lord. Have ourselves oriented towards that. Not towards the pleasures and cares and concerns and the delusion that we're going to live on here forever, but to have our eyes open for the coming of the Lord. Okay, verse 4, we introduce more of this play on the language of name or names. Yet you still, uh, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled themselves, oh no, soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So again, we see this theme that there's a remnant in the midst of this otherwise dead congregation, this otherwise dead church. There's a remnant that's alive, and he's saying, strengthen it lest it too die. Wake up, remember what you received and heard, keep it, and repent. If you don't wake up, 
I'm going to come in a surprising way and I'm going to come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. That's a, a remnant in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. Now, where do you, what, what's he talking about? Not just soiling your clothes as such. I mean, in, in a way you could say that all our, sin, you know, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. You can talk about our sins as filthy rags. But what's in view here? What's in view is the baptismal garment that you've received. Do you not know that all of you have been baptized, have put on Christ? So to put on Christ and then to soil that garment, how do you soil that garment? Well, in just the way we've seen in these letters, by turning to idolatry, which is adultery, which is uh, sexual promiscuity, eating meat sacrificed to idols, participating in the paganism around you. That's how you soil your baptismal garments. So, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And that is our goal, to retain our baptismal garments, to remain in grace, to walk with Jesus in white, and to be worthy. The one who conquers, verse 5, will be clothed thus in white garments. That's the now and not yet reality. It's the now that we've received in baptism. It's the not yet that we'll see when we are gathered around the throne of God, for example, in Revelation 7, which this section certainly points to. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Now, if we have sinned, if we have soiled those garments, if we're in need of repenting, um, and we're in need of clean garments, what do we do? We can't be baptized again. It's not that we need an entirely different garment. For this, let's turn to chapter 7, just a few verses ahead, and see what Revelation itself indicates. Okay, so just look at 7, and we'll just pick up at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Right. So how does one, you know, one receives these white garments in baptism by staying free from manifest idolatry. You retain the whiteness of that garment. If you were to dirty that garment, what is the remedy? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it's a strange heavenly laundry that goes on. Though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Even, if our, even after baptism, our, our garments have become filthy with sin and the scarlet of our sins. You add the scarlet of Jesus' blood and that scarlet of his blood cancels out the scarlet of our sin and you end up with white, white, beautiful, pristine robes, the righteousness of Christ given to us. So in other words, what is this actually saying? Repent and return to your baptism. Remember who you are and whose you are. Forsake the idolatry. Forsake the worldly way of living. Return to the Lord your God. Strengthen yourself in his word, lest you also die. All right, so there's a now and not yet in regard to these white garments. These white robes would be maybe a more uh, literal translation. Um, they're given to us in baptism. They're given to us for all eternity in, uh, as we, as we uh, pass into heaven and out of this world. So that's the first promise given to the one who conquers, uh, or the one who conquers will be um, clothed thus in white garments. And here's the second. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Fascinating, I suppose, in passing that your name can be blotted out from the book of life. Incompatible with once saved, always saved. Incompatible also with this idea that you can't, you know, sin mortally and destroy your faith and fall away. I will never blot out his name, um, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now this book of life, become, this is the first reference here in Revelation, there's one, two, three, depending on how you count, there's, um, an there's another four or five references to the book of life in Revelation. So, as we've seen at the end of all of the, these epistles with the, you know, the seven epistles to the churches, you have, you have seven calls to repentance and seven gospel promises. And in one way or another, all of those seven gospel promises relate directly to Jesus. And it's no different here. The white robe is, as Paul says, all you who have been baptized have been clothed in Christ. So that white robe is Christ. And then so too the book of life, properly understood, is Christ. Now, there too, you see this, you see this um, idea of name that keeps getting replayed too. So, chapter 1, you have the name of being alive, and then there are a few names in Sardis. And now here, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And there's one more. I will confess his name. Okay, there's, the, there's the last reference to name. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a little bit of, I, th I think this is a little fascinating. I don't want to make too much of it, but the name is written on the book of life, and let's say that Jesus is the book of life. And that, that too then is interesting when we kind of meditate and continue to ponder um, what's going on back in chapter 2, verses, uh, well, right around verse 17. Do you remember with the, white, the new name written on the stone? There's a name written on a stone. Here there's a name written in a book. So that, you know, it sheds some light that that stone may well be Christ. That would probably be the best way to understand it. And this, uh, here this book is Christ. All right, and then a very common theme throughout the Gospels as well that, um, that as we confess Jesus, 
in this life, he then confesses us before his father and before his angels. So he directs their attention away from uh, the earthly reality, the earthly stresses, the earthly pressures to capitulate, uh, to concede Christianity, to participate in the pagan culture around them. He directs their eyes not to the world, but eschatologically up out of the world to the judgment seat of God. Okay? I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Okay, that's, uh, that's again, what most commentators think is probably the second harshest or the letter, or the second um, most spiritually bleak church of the seven. Any thoughts, questions, comments you have there? in the letter to Sardis. Okay, off we go into to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one uh, opens. Okay. Well, this is, this is very interesting. And, of course, the only... Uh, we've seen Jesus called uh, the true one before, and obviously it's no leap to see him as the holy one. The only other place we've seen reference to a key actually probably doesn't relate. If you recall back... But that's probably... I mean, literarily, that's the connection. It ties Jesus back into chapter 1, verse 18, where Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay, so there's, there's one set of keys to death and Hades. And here is another. Here is the key of David. The Lutheran Study Bible notes this, that this language, key of David, stresses that Jesus is of the messianic line. In other words, he's a son of David. David, who has the keys to the kingdom, bestows those keys, so to speak, to Christ, his heir. Christ is David's son and David's Lord. Thus, he has the key of David. Now, the study, note, the study Bible continues, the key symbolizes Jesus' authority to allow people into heaven or exclude them. And he has entrusted this authority to his church on earth. So back in chapter 1, it's more to, um, when you're talking about death and Hades, he has the key to that. Here is the key, rather, to heaven, the key of David, to open or shut heaven. This, this language comes from Isaiah chapter 22. So let's, let's look back at Isaiah 22 um, and see what we can gather there. So Isaiah 22, and we will simply pick up at verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come 
Go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height, and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, and whirl you around and around, and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. So there's a similarity to some of the language we've been hearing. And will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a pig in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, etc., etc. So obviously here, a preaching and foretelling of Christ and who he is and who he will be. The main thing to realize is that this key of David is the kingship over Israel, the office of that kingship, and all authority that is connected with it. That's what it means to receive that key. So the fact that Jesus now claims to have that key indicates that this prophecy is fulfilled in him and that he is of the house and line of David and he has the true kingship of Israel. Make sense? So all the the prophecies that point to David and beyond David, to David's son and David's Lord, are fulfilled in Christ. Having this key to Jerusalem, um, the the city of David, at least in that respect, Uh, this is um, indicative then that Jesus has the key to the new Jerusalem, which as we'll see at the climax of Revelation is the the jewel of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the heavenly bride come down. So for him to be able to grant access to the new Jerusalem is the same as granting access to salvation, access to heaven or not in the language of of the study Bible. Make sense? So, in other words, salvation belongs to him and to him alone, and he has that authority to uh, open and no one can close and to close and no one can open. And it's these, it's in all likelihood, it's this same key that he passes on to Peter in Matthew 16 and to the disciples in Matthew 18, and that key is spelled out uh, most thoroughly in John 20, where he breathes on his disciples and says, if you, for, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. If the sins are retained, there's no entrance into heaven. If the sins are forgiven, there is entrance into heaven. So these keys, these keys of David uh, that belong to Jesus are then given to the office of the ministry, which is sometimes called the office of the keys. And you learned about that in confirmation class when you went through the fifth chief part of the small catechism. The office of keys is that authority which Christ has given his church on earth to bind and to loose sins, to open the doors of heaven to those who repent, to close the doors 
who do, to those who do not repent. Okay. All right, so there we have then um, Jesus as the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now he says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Okay. Um, really, the grammar there is more a door having been opened. It was previously a closed door, and now it has been opened. Any guesses as to how that door has been opened? Yeah, well, but yeah, really by Jesus' death on the cross, whereby he becomes worthy to bear the key and worthy to open that door to sinners. Because if, how, how do sinners enter that door? There's no worthiness. How can Jesus let sinners in? There's no rationale. But if Jesus bears their sins and makes atonement for their sins, he can open that door to sinners. He is worthy to do so, and they are worthy to enter in behind him. Does that make sense? All right. So this is the door having been opened. Behold, I have set before you an open door, a door having been opened, which no one is able to shut. And that's so beautiful because as we just connected that with the cross and with the atonement that Jesus has made, you can't undo the cross. You can't undo the atonement. You can't undo the fact that our sins are uh, forgiven and have been utterly put away forever. So that door is open and no one is able to shut it. He says, I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word. Increasingly, that reminds me of the faithful church in the West. <laughs> the unfaithful churches in the West are trading in the Lord for earthly power. But those who will remain faithful, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word. And there's that tereo, you've guard, cherished, obeyed. You know, it's that beautiful, rich word. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. So not only his identity, who he is, but of course we've connected that with baptism too. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Now if you recall that this, this synagogue of Satan came up in a different city. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9 is the first referent in Revelation to the synagogue of Satan. And in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it's those who say they are Jews and are not. The, the logic and the rationale here is only a true Jew is one who confesses Jesus to be the Christ. If you say you're a Jew but reject Jesus, you're not a true Jew. You're not a true member of Israel. Not all Israel is Israel, Paul says. Not all Jews are Jews, Paul says. Only the true Israel are those who have the faith of Abraham. The true Jews are those who have the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed in Jesus, you see. So to be a Jew who rejects Jesus is not to be a Jew at all. And that's, that's why um, they're called here, like, look at, look at chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, so, so uh, same reality here, happening in an altogether different city, Philadelphia. Verse 9 of chapter 3, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. 
Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this could either be by conversion or uh, to Christ, and thus they, you know, acknowledge that they were wrong and bow before the feet of the saints, or this could be in, in their final judgment um, as, as they have no choice but to recognize that Jesus and his saints have been true and that they reign. Verse 10, because you have kept, again, te reo, because you have kept my word and patient endurance, that's the hupomenes word that's just everywhere in the New Testament. You can hardly like open a page without that word on the New Testament. It means endure, 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 endure. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep, and it's the same word, I love that, I will keep, I will treasure, guard, honor, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Here, not thlipsis, not um, tribulation, but pyrosmu, pyrosmon, the the same thing we pray against um, in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, that's pyrosmon. So he's going to keep them from pyrosmon. I will keep you from the hour of temptation or trial that is coming on the whole world. The language there is unique. It's not just cosmos. It's more like the whole known world or inhabited world. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the uh, inhabited world to try. Again, that's to test or to tempt. Try those who dwell on the earth. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's a little bit of wordplay there in the Greek, and it's just interesting to wonder if those, if that dwell on earth is more like those who have made their homes on earth, right? And so the affliction is coming upon those who have made their homes on earth, but you who haven't, you who acknowledge that your home is above, that's precisely how you escape. That's precisely how you escape the trial. There's a, there's a parallel in that, by the way, with the coronavirus and everything we're going through, Right? insofar as you are invested in this world, you have much to lose, don't you? Life, economy, wealth, future. Insofar as you are invested in this world, you have much to lose. Insofar as you give thanks to God for those earthly gifts and yet do not invest yourself in them, but rather store up for yourselves treasures that are in heaven, you don't have that much to lose. It's a fascinating thing. So the same plague befalls all of us, but for some of us, the temptation is quite light. And what is it to us if we lose earthly goods? Well, for others, it's the same plague, but the temptation is quite heavy, even unbearable. This is all we have. There is nothing else. So, worth keeping in mind um, that that is probably precisely the dynamic whereby he will uh, keep them from the hour of trial that is coming. Verse 11, I am coming soon, he says. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Yet another reference of how many I've lost track to us reigning with Christ. <clears throat> and ruling with Christ, as 
is he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We're given this crown that's ours in baptism. It's already ours, by the way. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Which is so beautiful because toward the end of Revelation, the dwelling place of God is with man. And this is such beautiful imagery because it's not, it's not just to say we go to the temple or are in the temple. We are the temple. You can tie that in with you know, what Paul says. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, etc. So here we are, the temple, the pillars. Um, you can find a reference to the, the, pillars of the, the pillars of the church. Peter, James, and John, I think. Here's the pillars of the temple. If you conquer, you become a pillar in the temple. Um, possible reference, too, though. Brighton doesn't say anything about it. There were two famous pillars of Solomon's temple, and when that was destroyed by the Babylonians, they carried, carried it off. But those were the Boaz and uh, Jachin is what they're called. Boaz means in him is strength, and Jachin means he will establish. So it may well be a reference to that, and it may well be a reference, too, to... If you remember the second temple, when it was built, it was not built in the glory of Solomon's temple. Um, the, the generations that hadn't seen Solomon's temple, those folks, they were all rejoicing and happy. The generations that had seen Solomon's temple were weeping and wailing, and so you couldn't tell whether they were... Anyways, this really, really strange part of Scripture. You can't tell if the crowd's weeping or rejoicing. Um, so, so you see this, like, this denigration of the temple. And now in Christ Jesus, you see that temple being brought back up to the level of Solomon. That's possibly what's being communicated. And then as we'll see, even beyond. When the temple is completely refashioned and re-understood in the way of the new heavens and the new earth. So a very similar thing happens with Genesis, right? Uh, we fall from the garden, from the paradise. We're brought back up to the garden and the paradise, but even beyond that. So, too, we've fallen from the temple of Solomon. We're brought back up to the temple of Solomon and beyond that to a temple par excellence. All right, so we, will, uh, we who overcome will be pillars in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, which is just so beautiful. No matter what we do, we'll never depart from God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. There's a baptismal reference, of course, when God writes his name upon us in the waters of baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's now and not yet. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And see how that ties back into the key of David? That's the key to, to Jerusalem, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And here, I will write on him not only the name of my God, but the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem. So beautiful. And then also marital, because the new Jerusalem descends from heaven as a bride. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. And so these two names uh, being made one in our flesh. So that heaven and earth and Jesus and his church are married and that marriage is embodied in our very flesh. And that indicated here by the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, both being written upon us. All right, continuing with the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. This is all at the end of Revelation. So as we, as we get to the end of these seven epistles, there are references to the end of Revelation. Revelation. 
And then he also says, and my own new name. Which again, if you take in the, if you take in the book of life and us being written upon him, now he writes himself upon us. And that new name, that language also traces back to that white stone we were talking about with a new name written on the stone. And here's a reference to the new name of Jesus given to us. Okay, so, so look at this. This is fascinating because you get the name of God, the name of the city of God, and my own new name, the name of Jesus. You get this threefold name. Remember what we saw and where we began at the beginning of this hour with the stars and the spirits and the connection between the stars and the spirits and the lampstands and the churches. What I actually think you have here is a Trinitarian reference. You have God. You have the new name of Jesus. Those are clear. Where's the Holy Spirit? Precisely embodied in the new Jerusalem. Precisely embodied in the city of God and the bridegroom descending uh, from on high. So I think you have a Trinitarian reference here. In, in the typical strange and wonderful way of revelation. All right, verse 13 ends the same way as the others do. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next week, we'll hit Laodicea, and then we will be heading into the throne room of God, and really one of the most beautiful parts in all of Revelation. The Lord be with you.